Hello, I'm Charlotte Watts. Welcome to these podcasts that were first broadcast live in my Facebook group, Charlotte Watts Calm. Hope you enjoy them. And if you want more, please look at my website, charlottewattshealth.com. Welcome to this week's Facebook Live on Charlotte What's Calm. And this week we're going to be looking at some simple tips to help calm anxiety, something that is becoming much more common, much more prevalent as life becomes more overwhelming, as the expectations upon us become more overwhelming it can really be a factor within this uh, this 21st century living to feel that sense of overwhelm and for some that is part of what would be called trait anxiety so the tendency often from a young age to go into anxious states to have an, a, a response to a stress or a challenge or even a situation that might seem normal to other people that would include quite a pronounced sense of unsafe and going into the whole nervous system response to that. So really going into a place where there's a sense of a need to either run away or fight is in the fight or flight but often linked with that is a mobilization as well this freeze response that is often if we are caught it's somewhere where we don't feel we have options or we have had long-term and chronic stress going into that freeze response that immobilization can often seem that the only place we have to go and freeze can come with a sense of kind of otherworldliness not quite being there or a sense of being caught without any kind of physical response happening, but a sense that things are really going around, there's a real racing sense inside. And whether we term what we personally feel in response to big stressful events as anxiety or as agitation, which I think is a a good word because it kind of gives a sense of that kind of that vibrational quality that anxiety has that things cannot still because one of the things that's quite profoundly present if we go into anxiety states that are either of trait anxiety like I said or are more reactive to things that are going on around us is that inability to self-soothe that inability to come down off the ceiling as it were to come down off a state of being you know feeling unsafe feeling we need protection and being able to come back down to a resting place where we can see our environment with reflection um, with this, and with a sense of space. So self-soothing is something that comes from what we often call vagal tone, the vagus nerve, which starts, it's the 10th cranial nerve in the brain that starts around the base of the skull and wraps itself all the way around our organs, is a how we self-soothe, how we're able to bring ourselves from a state of agitation or anxiety into a place of resting and where our whole body come back down to calm and that sense of calm when our heart rate has come down, when things start to unclench, when we can start to relax our shoulders and when we can get a sense of perspective around us. And good vagal tone is something that can be created. It's something that people with 
trauma, whether that's shock trauma or whether that's developmental trauma. And with developmental trauma, I don't just mean something that happened, you know, large events or abuse happened in childhood, but even that kind of lack of attunement or lack of uh, nurturing in childhood can leave that sense of unsafe that ripples through the nervous system. And another thing that interferes with our ability to self-soothe, our ability to have what's called good vagal tone. And this vagal tone is a real benchmark of how we're able to come back from that immobilization. So often when we're in those old body responses and things like immobilization and going into a very stuck fear response, is our old brain, patterns in our old brain just playing out things that are in our deep in our conditioning that we're often not very aware of in our conscious mind, but it's our unconscious, which is usually the patterns of that are set from you know below the age of seven, but it's just playing out the old stuff again. So very, very often the anxiety that we are showing in any given moment is not actually of that situation there and then. The reason that we would call it anxiety and not a healthy stress survival response is it's because it's not appropriate for what is happening in the present moment. So it might be, for instance, that, you know, it might be the environment we're in, we might be in a work situation where it is expected of us to be seen to coping. And yet internally, we feel like everything is at crunch point. They might feel like there's sirens going on in our head. Or it might be that we're at home and and there's nothing really to come into our environment or our world to make us actually unsafe. But ruminations in our head, stories that are coming up from conditionings keep us in a sense that we are in a place where there is actual and present danger. So when we have states of anxiety and self-soothing seems like it's a long way away, then one of the most important things is to have a sense of where we are. So grounding is something that's used a lot within trauma work, um, particularly trauma work that really recognises that trauma is a full physiological event. It's not in the mind. It's not a psychological event that has happened, but it is something that is absolutely full on physical. And what we need when we have our brain reacting in a full keeping us our, our full physiological responses is grounding, which is an absolute true and present sense of where we are physically right now. Because often when people go into anxiety states or they go into something like dissociation, that sense that we're not really there, even out of body, then really knowing where our body is and having a good sense of our physicality here not only gives us a sense, okay, that we might be safe, there might be some start of connection and attunement to the actual present state of affairs, but also because so much of our society has us very much living neck up, has us thinking our way through life and has us believing that our thoughts are us, that the stories and the ruminations and the emotions about the thought and the thoughts about a feeling and all of these circles that we go into, because we often believe that that is us and we actually exist in our heads, this cutoff that we can have neck down is actually in itself unsettling for our whole being. 
grounding and coming into our bodies in a sense of embodied awareness, so it's often called embodied cognition, is very soothing for the body to know where we are and to know that this is us. So senses of dissociation, senses of not quite being there and in trauma, if people start to become present in their bodies, they can notice particularly in hands and feet, hands and and knowledge of our hands and feet, incredibly good for presence, for keeping us in a sense of, you know, tethered here and now. And noticing what we can feel in our hands and our feet gives us a really good idea of, of how much we can feel attached to each moment as it moves on. So if you feel dissociated, often one of the feelings that comes with that is that we might feel that our feet are very small, they're very big, or one is small one is big that they don't quite feel physical like feel fuzzy they might feel different in relation to the rest of our body they might not feel like they're there but even starting to identify those feelings catches our attention up on our physicality and then starting to move toes feet to move fingers starts to really get a sense of bringing us into our body our feet are very useful because they are the furthest away from our heads They're what we stand on the ground to lift up from it. So they are, in essence, very grounding. So walking meditation rather than seated meditation can be incredibly good for people who tend to anxiety. It's actually quite a big ask for someone with anxiety to simply sit and be kind of encased in their shell of potential, kind of like a storm going on inside. So... It's good to learn to be with that, but initially moving around, doing some sense of mindful movement. It doesn't have to be kind of full on yoga, qigong type chi practice. It it can be just moving and just walking, pacing to feel the ground. That's one of the reasons that when people are agitated, they often want to pace. There's a lot of inherent wisdom in how we can find ways to self-soothe. So other ways that people turn to that, again, are that coming down to self-soothing when we're not able to engage our vagal tone ourself is things like washing hands, touching our faces, rocking, things that people turn to for comfort. And it's a useful thing to do, you know, particularly introverts and by introverts I don't mean people who are shy it's not about shyness it's not about lack of confidence introversion is someone who needs to recover to come back to a sense of self by being away from other people and extroverts need to be around people to regather resources to bring themselves up so really asking ourselves whether actually when we feel really overwhelmed or agitated do we want to be away or do we gravitate towards crowds for instance and we live in a pretty extrovert society and if this is something that kind of piques an interest to you I really do recommend reading Susan Cain's book Quiet which talks you know great length and very brilliantly about the fact that we have an extrovert society and that's actually quite challenging for introverts who need a lot of space, who need time for reflection, who live in an inner world and need time to nourish that. That's simply living in a big, busy world where we're expected to have an opinion immediately, to externalise very often. That in itself is incredibly challenging. And I think the more that you kind of, if that speaks to you, the more that you 
acknowledge that and learn when you need breaks, when you need to take yourself away from overwhelm, going for a walk. You know, you will always often find introverts in the kitchen at parties or in the toilets in offices in great numbers. So recognizing our own patterns and the space that we might need to come down is very important to be able to get that sense of being able to self-soothe and the things that we might need to do that. And touch is one of them. And if you uh, tend to anxiety and, for instance, you live alone or life is set up so that you're not getting hugs from other people, you're not getting that cohesion of the tribe and we are social mammals it is very much part of our wiring and our ability to have neuroplasticity, to be resilient and adaptable and flexible within situations, to feel that we are part of the tribe. And, you know, there's plenty of research to show that loneliness is one of the things that is most detrimental to us as humans mentally and physically. So seeking out some kind of contact from people who make us feel safe, is really key. So not people who press our buttons, not people who push that old stuff of our old conditioning, but people who would just simply reassure us and make us feel like they are there for us, that we are safe. That's really, really important for our ability to come down, to feel part of the tribe. And for many of us, if that's not always readily available, then a hug from ourselves, feeling our own body, our physicality, and actually properly giving ourselves a hug. After about 20 seconds of a hug and this palpable expression of self-compassion, after about 20 seconds of a hug, we release the hormone and neurotransmitter oxytocin. And oxytocin is often called the love molecule. It's what we get a flood of, a rush of, when we are in love, it's what newborn mothers get, uh, newborn mothers, mothers get when they are nursing the babies and fathers as well when they are holding and feeling their children. It's what we get when we hug another person. Hopefully that hug is wanted from you, but we can also get that from ourselves. And particularly if we begin to be able to practice self-compassion and metta practices and metta is a, a Buddhist term for friendliness, loving kindness, care, all words along that sense of nurture and kindness, gentleness. Metta Bhavna, which is loving kindness practice, has shown to help soothe anxiety and to help our resilience. Now, resilience sounds like a hard word, but actually what it means is it, it is our ability to meet the outer world with a sense of ease that we have that kind of plasticity where we can bend with the times rather than feel that we break under pressure. And metabhavna, loving kindness, self-compassion, all of these practices are incredibly helpful and long-term use and have great evidence to show that they do increase our coping capacities and they do increase vagal tone. And that coming back to self-compassion for many is quite a tough ask in the beginning, particularly if we come from backgrounds where we weren't offered that compassion to ourselves was valued, that it was important. 
that we may have been given criticism that, you know, may have come from love. It may have had a good motivation behind it, but the words, the constant message that our, our growing brain received were of, of judgment. Then those kind of high expectations for ourselves and those tendencies, those habits for self-criticism can mean that self-compassion is very difficult. And one of the key phrases around self-compassion is that I am deserving of kindness. And that in itself can feel quite tough to accept and to hear, particularly we tend to go into anxiety estates. And one of the things that I found most useful along my journey with this is something that I learned from Kristen Neff, who is a neuroscientist who's done the big, largest body of work into the effects of self-compassion. She wrote a book called Self-Compassion, which is excellent. I listened to a podcast of hers on Sounds True website. There's a free podcast series on that called The Self-Acceptance Project. And the first podcast on that is with Kristen Neff. And she explains on that how one of the most important elements of self-compassion is to be able to offer gratitude to the negative voices. Because one of the benchmarks of anxiety is this flood of negativity of voices that are kind of shouting, beware, beware, beware. And that is from hypervigilance. It's from constantly scanning and seeing the potential bad in a situation, which is a survival response. So we have to look at it as a sense that that is our body, our mind attempting to protect us. Now, it might not be the best strategy and it can be quite outmoded, but often if it's the only strategy we feel we have and it's the one that we brought along with us from our unconscious conditioning, then we're pretty caught up in it. We're just playing it up over and over again. And I like that analogy of that it's really important for us to actually have a, that healthy sense of vigilance, that if we were in the cave in the wild and we heard a rustle out in the jungle, uh, the forest, that it's pretty important to firstly consider that that might be something coming to harm us, not to come play nicely with us or have nice sex with us. But it's not a bad idea to firstly be vigilant and just check out uh, the nature of something coming towards us. And without that, you know, we don't necessarily have a healthy sense of self-protection. So many of our boundaries come from that. So if we can just acknowledge that that might be, you know, there's a kind of healthy setting and have some gratitude for the negative voices and listen to them. We don't have to really hear what they're saying because it's often a kind of in a bit of an alarm state. And we can offer to them that actually, thank you for trying to look out for us. But we're trying different strategies here in terms of being with ourselves, placing our hands somewhere in our body that makes us feel safe. Because if you imagine if you know someone's house was on fire and you were knocking on the door for them to notice and do something about it, leave the house and they didn't answer and you knew they were in there, you wouldn't just go away. So if those voices aren't listened to, they're going to knock louder. So paying attention to them, but without getting caught up in the stories is a very helpful way to approach self-compassion. And sometimes self-compassion starts with self-compassion for those very voices. And then coming back to that sense of embodied awareness and really starting to create safety. And safety is such a key word in anxiety. 
and in living life in a calm, easeful way. And that is about looking at the stuff where we have high expectations of ourselves and where it is we need safety and creating safety in our life to give us those refuges to come back to. And that might be safety in terms of our home, our bedroom, our the people we surround ourselves with, the space we give ourselves, the activities we do. You know, for me personally, walking in greenery is so important for me to feel an absolute inherent sense of safety in my nervous system. It's something I learned to do a long time ago, like when I had very high anxiety in my 20s. Uh, I really learned to walk, to walk it out. And when I don't do that, I feel a sense of kind of stagnation in my body that actually means I don't have the space to deal with the mental stuff that comes up. And a submersion in warm water is a key thing that really allows us to come into parasympathetic tone. That's the calming tone of the nervous system that is innovated. It's set off by the vagus nerve, by that vagal tone. So immersion in warm water Baths and Epsom salts are incredibly useful. They are very, very good for bringing people down out of a high anxiety state into a self-soothing state. And you can have them daily and you cannot add enough Epsom salts. I tend to buy huge five kilo bags from West Lab, the brand West Lab, which you can get online. I give my daughter Epsom salts baths and they give us a sense of listening to something good in there, putting lavender oil in, all of this stuff is, again, it's creating a sort of kind of safe, nice, safe cave for yourself. On the nutritional front, for people who tend to anxiety, it can often be a sign of magnesium deficiency. There's plenty of stuff to do in terms of anxiety, and I can point you in the direction of kind of like blogs with I've written with much more information here. But one of the key minerals that we need to calm of the parasympathetic nervous system is magnesium and it tends to be pretty deficient across populations and a supplement of magnesium citrate can be taken between 150 milligrams up to 400 500 milligrams some morning some evening if insomnia is part of your pattern then having magnesium with dinner can really help to allow us to come into full quality sleep then allows us to cope with the day ahead Also, drinking chamomile tea is not just a kind of lightweight, calming thing. Chamomile tea has plenty of good research behind it that it increases levels of a neurotransmitter in the body called glycine. And glycine is the neurotransmitter, the brain chemical that actually keeps us asleep. When we're going into dream states and actually we could be acting out what we're dreaming about, glycine is the neurotransmitter that kind of paralyzes us in sleep. It stops us acting them out. So often people who do sleepwalk can be low in glycine, but that's also a neurotransmitter that can calm us during the day. And drinking chamomile tea doesn't just have that effect after drinking it but regularly drinking it increases our levels of that neurotransmitter that allows us to self-soothe it gives us some coping capacity in the face of stress and then the other one thing I want to leave you with is celery it's always my kind of favorite anti-anxiety calming tool if you like celery uh, like lettuce but celery has high amounts of a mineral called potassium which does help to calm us but also a compound called epigenin and that is an anti-anxiety again it allows us to calm through the parasympathetic nervous system it's very effective some of the research has been done on celery shows that four sticks of celery a day 
can actively lower blood pressure better than a blood pressure medication. Now, if you consider that blood pressure is part of vital flight response and higher blood pressure, raised blood pressure is a symptom of stress, it's a heart disease risk symptom of stress, then that's greatly interlinked. And also cultures that have used celery, it's always been, you know, it's been used much traditionally as a sleep and a calming remedy. And also the action of the thing about celery is the action of chewing releases the jaw and we tend to uh, clamp the jaw and tend to hold there in anxiety states, which then tells the rest of the body that if we're clamping the jaw, we must, there's something must be wrong and it keeps up. It keeps these loops of going to the stress response up. So celery, that have chewing you have to do really creates space around this kind of temporal area where things can get pretty and you get this. <laughs> A sense of stress. So there's plenty of tips to be getting on with there. Do ask me for any extra explanations you need, any links you need from stuff that I've mentioned, and do ask questions. I came to all this stuff I do, nutrition, yoga, mindfulness. Anxiety was a massive, massive uh, part of that um, through my childhood, through my teens, through kind of culminating for me in a nervous breakdown when I was 23 and then what really moved me towards you know looking after myself and coming to these things that I do now so um, it's something that I feel I understand experientially so I'm very happy to answer questions on so I hope that's been helpful and uh, speak to you soon